My name is Mitch Randall. I'm the CEO of Good Faith Media and the executive producer of Brother Molly. We would like to take a moment to address Brother Molly's delay in the rescheduling of its release. All six episodes of Brother Molly, our documentary podcast on theologian Molly T. Marshall, were originally scheduled to drop on March 24th, a date for which we were ready. On March 11th, about two weeks before the drop date, we received information from Central Seminary, where Molly was president, that perhaps it would be wise to reconsider the March 24th release. Molly was out of the country, and we were confused by what we were hearing and not hearing. What emerged in the coming days was advanced news that Dr. Molly T. Marshall, president of Central Seminary in Shawnee, Kansas, would be leaving her position ahead of her planned retirement in May. Details of what exactly transpired were few, and remained so as our drop date approached. When March 24th arrived, and still without a public statement from either Molly or Central, we announced an unspecified delay with the podcast. About a week later, on Monday, March the 30th, Central Seminary released a statement saying the seminary's board of trustees had accepted the resignation of Dr. Marshall from all duties as president and professor of theology and spiritual formation. Cliff Vaughn, the podcast producer, and I had contact with Molly as news of her resignation was impending and then public. Internally, as an organization, we debated what to do with the completed podcast. We decided to delay its release while we determined the best steps forward and said so publicly. Brother Molly, a little over three hours of narrative podcast across six episodes have been completed well before we had any knowledge of Molly's resignation. Our production spanned across 2019 and into early 2020, involving several production trips, archival research, narration, and interviews with more than two dozen of Molly's friends, colleagues, and associates. Brother Molly is a podcast chronicling the life of an individual who had a significant impact within the Baptist tradition and theological education. The podcast focuses on Molly's life, her spirituality, and her impact on religion, theology, and people, and it's a story that continues to unfold. While we are releasing the original six episodes, we've given Brother Molly both this prologue as well as an epilogue. The epilogue is not necessarily the rest of the story, but some more of the story. A story about a flesh and blood child of God. A story about someone with demonstrated courage and vulnerability. Some have questioned our decision to release the podcast now or even at all, wondering if we are knowingly or unknowingly minimizing some kind of illegal behavior. We want to be clear that we have conducted due diligence while trying to respect privacy. Our finding, based on information we obtained, is that Molly's situation involves no illegal behavior. If we had any evidence that it did, we would not proceed with release of the podcast. So why release the podcast now? We maintain that there is an opportunity here, one that should speak to each of us, to engage the human dimensions of honesty and pain, strength and weakness, success and failure, pasts and futures, and how we behave when presented with information that contradicts what we believed or thought we knew. In the epilogue, you will hear from Molly, who spoke again after the public announcement with producer Cliff Vaughn. A word of caution, though. The epilogue makes no sense without the original six episodes, which explore certainty and humility, betrayal and forgiveness, 
grace and gratitude, achievement and loss. Good Faith Media has a responsibility to note that every interview in the original six episodes took place months before Molly's resignation. In addition, we were asked by a participant to be removed from the completed podcast. While we reserve our rights to the interviews, we have granted that request. Good Faith Media also needs to state that the production and the release of this podcast should not be viewed as any indication that we agree or disagree with any actions associated with Molly's resignation from Central. Simply stated, we have sought to be truthful, fair, responsible, and kind to all parties involved. Good Faith Media originally sought to produce and share a story about a pioneer of faith, which we did. Molly's life, like each of ours, has traversed peaks and valleys and been marked by joy and sorrow. Here now is Brother Molly. Let me tell you a story. The story of Brother Molly. It's about the genders and the benders, the politics and the vicious licks, seminaries and ovularies, heresies and Pharisees, a dissertation, denomination, abomination, a tongue aflame no one's to tame, some principles and abstract, and theology that's always hacked. It's about a preacher and a teacher, a speaker and a seeker, a battle for the minds and a war of the kinds, Muhammad Ali and what's lost at sea, the three, the trinity, being hated for thee, but for Dr. Green and a spirit unseen, for the Myanmar's and those with scars, for the Winnebago's and the Delaware's, the altar calls and the righteous stares, the gray hairs, blue hairs, no hairs, bobbed hairs, and rocking chairs, for the queen regents and the ladies in waiting, For all the truth little girls keep stating, with Betty and Gloria the Apostle Paul, for all the pain inflicted from the fall, there she is. A flash of red across a border, a lit-up brain upset in order, the Benedictine's brother, the Benedictine's mother, retire on fire, retire on fire, across the earth in the slow way to love. To love, to love. Brother, Molly. From Good Faith Media, A Good Faith Story, Brother Molly, a narrative six-episode podcast on Molly T. Marshall, a theologian, a professional and personal story of life and death and resurrection. Well, I heard about Molly and knew about Molly long before I met her. She carried on challenging uh, a male-dominated environment, challenging the patriarchy, the exclusivity. She just looked at me, you know, with her wide eyes and said, I think you should cast your nets wider. I had never had 
anyone, I guess you would say, quote, in authority over me as a female. She's a resilient leader. She's tenacious. She wanted to be a Baptist minister. Now, this is early. This is, you know, mid-70s. I could see rascal in her. I knew she was never going to settle for the status quo. I can really see uh, Molly being one of the giants of our generation for so many people. I'm one of those people. My name is Erica Whitaker. Reverend is my title, for I am the senior pastor of Butchel Park Baptist Church in Louisville, Kentucky. Despite what you may have heard or may think, some of us Baptist pastors are women. This fact is due in no small part to Molly Truman Marshall. It's time you meet Brother Molly, lover of big words. My father loved words, as do I. I think you call that a sesquipedalian. Pneumatology. Perichoresis. The imprecatory psalms. That was written as an etiological story. The Zitzenleben. And then conversatio morum, which keeps you from being a gyrovag. Did you catch all that? You're not alone if you didn't. But Brother Molly, a teacher as well as a president, will explain. So let's begin way back, at the very beginning. Episode 1, Queen Regent. Molly Truman Marshall, born December 30, 1949, in Muskogee, Oklahoma. A pioneer born into a pioneering heritage with family names like Burl Jackson Marshall, William Sherman Wiley, Jasper Newton Marshall. Ministers come from both sides of Molly's family, as do stories of being pioneer preachers in Indian Territory, of leading Oklahoma's first governor to faith in Jesus, of following God's call into the great Northwest, which just meant Lubbock. But these stories of faith about her pioneering people aren't just about Burl and Jasper. That is, only the men. There's also the one about Molly's great-aunt Clemma, Cora, Wiley, Ricks, Rogers. Let's just call her great-aunt Clem, who had gone to Louisville, Kentucky, to attend the Woman's Missionary Union Training School. It was affiliated with the Southern Baptist Convention's premier seminary, Southern Baptist Theological Seminary, also located in Louisville. She sat at the back of the room in A.T. Robertson's Greek classes. The women were told not to say a word, that it was a privilege for them just to be able to overhear what was going on. But great Aunt Clem did it. She finished her training there exactly a century ago. So Molly's ties to Louisville go back, way back. But more on Louisville and Southern Seminary later. Molly, in many ways, builds her life among brothers, between brothers, beside brothers. Stories of Brother Burl and Brother Jasper. She's a sister in the middle of two brothers, one older, one younger. And there was, of course, always Brother So-and-so of First Baptist Church in Muskogee. Oh, brother, is Molly in a world filled with few women? But then again, there's always her mother. My mother, uh, growing up in this... Ethos was a very committed uh, church woman. My father was a faithful 
a supporter. I would think you could call me a church mouse. I was always there. My mother was active uh, as a Sunday school teacher. She sang in the choir. She was very invested. My father was a quieter person, uh, probably had more questions about faith uh, than my mother, uh, a thoughtful uh, autodidact. That means he was self-taught. I had every encouragement. We were a vibrant Southern Baptist Church, Baptist to the bone. Molly, like many Southern Baptist girls of this era, is a GA. That is a member of the Girls' Auxiliary. GAs were created in the early 1900s by the Women's Missionary Union of the Southern Baptist Convention. The goal? Cultivate a love for missions among young Southern Baptist women. If we get little girls learning the great mission stories, learning the ethos of what it means for a girl, a young woman to serve in a godly way, then we will enhance uh, recruits uh, for the mission field. We will raise mission support. It, w- it was formative. I thought some of it was a bunch of hooey, actually. Why did you need to memorize the addresses of the Foreign Mission Board and the Home Mission Board and the Sunday School Board? GAs also reinforce... Typical gender roles. That's Susan Shaw, professor of Women, Gender, and Sexuality Studies at Oregon State University. She grew up a Southern Baptist in Georgia and later earned a doctorate from Southern Seminary in Louisville. And Susan, too lived the glorious G.A. life. It wasn't only about missions. It was a missions mashup, part Girl Scout, part fairy tale, part beauty pageant. The white dresses and the crowns and the capes and the scepters, and then those god-awful levels, which, what were they, like maiden and lady and waiting. A girl would progress through the G.A.s in stages, with each stage carrying various accoutrements like crowns and capes patches and bracelets, and of course, regal names. One started as a maiden, then moved to lady-in-waiting. Princess, queen, queen with scepter, queen regent, queen regent in service. Here's Molly. I was a bit of a tomboy. I would rather whack a ball on the tennis court. Indeed, Molly's older brother is given a tennis racket, but really has no interest. She, however, does. She teaches herself how to play and wins the Oklahoma State Doubles Championship when she's 14. But back to church. I was a dutiful GA. I went through, I went through the steps. That's the teenage Molly. GA scepter in one hand, tennis racket in the other. A fearsome sight to behold. Here's Eileen Campbell-Reed, who holds a PhD in religion from Vanderbilt University. Yes, it is true. I was a queen, a queen regent, a queen regent in service, and I have the cape, the scepter, uh, the crown, the pin, all of that to prove it. And I memorized scripture and countries where missionaries served, and I learned CPR, and I did service projects all over Knoxville, Tennessee while I grew up. And every year in May, I walked down the aisle to the trumpet playing God of Our Fathers. (laughs) Molly has a unique characterization of this sensational Southern Baptist pageantry. The March of the Vestal Virgins. 
And every year I had little attendants, a boy and a girl who walked with me. I wore long white dresses. I knelt down and got uh, each of the awards each year. Um, and I, even as a college student, became an Act Teens leader and I walked other girls through the same process because it was part of the culture and totally in the water I was swimming in. I never thought to question it. I just did it. But the GAs, like most things, are complicated. Did GA culture reinforce traditional gender roles? Of course. But here's Dr. Campbell Reed again. It also built a tremendous and beautiful pathway that I could walk toward my own call to ministry. It shaped who I was as a person in the world and a person who believed God was calling me to do something more than just, um, you know, breathe the air. <laughs> Let's consider the assessment of Oregon State's Dr. Shaw, who unpacks some of this in her book, God Speaks to Us Too, Southern Baptist Women on Church, Home, and Society. Elders laugh about all of that gendered stuff in GAs that we did, and yet at the same time, GAs is that place where when I interviewed the women in ministry, for the book, the vast majority of them, when I ask, what made you think you could go into ministry, said, NGAs, they told me I could be anything God calls me to be. Church was a place of possibility for me. It was a place of mischief as well. Uh, because it was just so much fun, and I tormented the teachers with with questions and with and with mischief. But I grew up hearing the threefold call, Sunday by Sunday, uh, to confess faith in Christ, to rededicate your life, or to surrender for full time Christian ministry, and grew up with that in the ether. A formative thing happened for me when I was about 13. At the church a business meeting, there was a debate as to whether or not First Baptist Muskogee could call a woman as youth director. And I remember being incensed by it. She had gone to seminary. She had already served a church in Dallas, and I, th I thought there was no logic as to what was being said. They were saying, could she control the boys? What if she gets married? Uh, could we hear her if she spoke uh, in leading the kids? And I thought, this is ridiculous, and I spoke to it as a very young adolescent uh, beginning to get my sensibilities about what girls and boys could and could not do and resisted the privileging of boys pretty early. Resistance to the ridiculous takes root in Molly's calling to ministry. As a 14-year-old at a camp experience, Siloam Springs Camp in Arkansas, I sensed uh, a calling to ministry, made a commitment 
thinking it would be uh, youth ministry or junior high lock-ins till Jesus comes. Uh, it had been bubbling in me for a couple of years because a pastor had said to me when I was a 12-year-old, have you ever considered working with young people when you grow up? Which I thought was a very interesting question to a 12-year-old girl. And I began to think about that a bit. And this experience then as a 14-year-old uh, was, this would be about 1963. Uh, it was unusual, but the church had forever had a saying, wherever he leads, I'll go. And I thought it meant me also. And so I made that commitment, and actually, I have never uh, deviated from a sense that I have been called to ministry. It's taken different forms. I have been a pastor, and I've been a youth minister, and then in theological education now in my fourth decade of doing that. But uh, a calling to ministry uh, is one of the deep, grounded convictions of my life. Brother Molly returns after the break. This is Mitch Randall, Executive Director of Ethics Daily. And I'm Johnny Pierce, Executive Editor of Nurturing Faith. Did you know that our organizations are merging to form Good Faith Media? I'm Autumn Lockett, the new Executive Director of Marketing and Development for Good Faith Media. We've been working on this venture for months. And we're excited. There's more to tell. Go to goodfaithmedia.org. The Eula May and John Baugh Foundation recognizes the God-given dignity of every person and supports nonprofit organizations, including Good Faith Media, that reflect the love of Christ. Among the Baugh Foundation's values are compassion, inclusivity, and church-state separation. The Baugh Foundation is pleased to support Good Faith Media and this podcast on the life and work of Molly T. Marshall. Brother Molly continues. Molly speaks about what theologian Ronald Rollheiser calls a holy longing in each of us, and how our vocation has to do with what we do with our unrest. Molly says this unrest about the place of women in the church began early. I figured out pretty early on everybody was called a minister but the youth director, who was female, and I would ask those unfortunate questions. Uh, along the way. But I was also a pretty compliant, good daughter who didn't like to be too much of a troublemaker, uh, although I began to see uh, things. It is ironic that the church culture into which I was born produced me, but my ancestry my temperament, my earnestness about faith, 
also contributed. But there's also this reality that I grew up between two brothers and uh, as a pretty competitive uh, little girl and adolescent. And I, I guess I had a little Annie Oakley notion, anything you can do, uh, I can do better. And so that's a part of it. Uh, the pastors really didn't quite know what to make of uh, a person who, uh, a female, who was seeking to claim her rightful place. Molly is quick to put these pastors' responses in the context of the 1950s and 60s. These were godly folk. Uh, They just had a horizon that really uh, did not indulge much interest toward women serving. And just to clarify Molly's position, her exposure to more conservative theologies is not all bad. For even Molly has said, I think everyone should start out with conservative scholarship and then get over it. In 1968, Molly packs her bags with wit and wonderlust as she begins her next adventure at Oklahoma Baptist University in Shawnee. College, I was a psych major because I thought that'll help me work with youth, which I was preparing to do. At OBU, Molly forms several critical relationships. First, Molly is quickly noticed by a woman working for the university. Her name? Helen Moore Montgomery. We caught up with Helen, then 90, in a hotel lobby during a Baptist meeting in Birmingham, Alabama. Molly and I both have history in Oklahoma. Um, I had heard her name as a student coming to the Oklahoma Baptist University campus, and um, I was working with development. And we had practiced bringing in students to go out to the high schools and talk and bring in students for us. And so as we were interviewing, I kept saying, I want this one, I want this one, Molly Marshall. And someone said, well, why are you so insistent on Molly? And I said, because one day I'm going to be learning from her. And how true that has become. Molly and Helen's friendship is already in its fifth decade. Their deep connection began with Helen's keen sense of who even the teenaged Molly, still holding both scepter and racket, was and would become. I always speak in lay terms. I don't do theological (laughs) conversation. What I saw in Molly was that she was very, very real as a student. She already knew herself. She was real. But what I saw that sparked my interest and kept my, my joy in meeting her and seeing her was that I could see rascal in her. I knew she was never going to settle for the status quo. Helen is right. Another significant relationship develops for Molly while she serves as a summer youth minister in Cushing, Oklahoma. There she meets the Green family, Douglas and Margaret and their three children. Douglas had served in the Coast Guard at the end of World War II and was now a family practitioner in Cushing. 
Molly becomes a friend of the Greens, who will figure prominently in her future. Molly plays a bit of tennis at OBU, but she says she mostly wanted to study. It's also from college days that stories about Molly begin expanding like the universe. Mention her name in certain galaxies, and planets of people start spinning out stories. People who witnessed something about Molly heard something about Molly. Here's David Wilkinson, a longtime friend of Molly's who graduated from OBU a few years behind her. I will also um, confess to some jealousy uh, in that the Molly legend in Muskogee, Oklahoma, and those stories uh, from Oklahoma Baptist University, I could never live up to Molly's reputation, which wasn't necessarily a reputation based upon her sterling academic achievement um, as it was some of the pranks that she pulled. If you get on Molly's um, list uh, in that regard, uh, you'll never be able to upstage her. And she's got a great sense of humor and a great wit. Another one of Molly's longtime friends, Babs Baugh, shares a story about some of Molly's antics in the women's parlor on campus. When she was in OBU, she sneaked in at night and hung women's underwear all on the chandelier all around it. That was a jewel in her crown. (laughs) Now there's more than one version of that particular story. Other variants hold that it wasn't underwear that Molly strung up there. Some truths should remain a mystery. Here's Molly herself telling another story. I thought praying at basketball games was a farce, as if God cared who won. And so when I was invited to pray, I did the customary stuff. And then, may the best team win? Come on, Bison! Amen! You know, just making a farce of the prayer. Well, I was called into the president's office. And he was to chastise me because we'd been playing Bethany Nazarene, another small ball, you know, whatever, uh, a Nazarene school in Oklahoma City. And their president had lodged a complaint about the sacrilege of that young woman uh, uh, praying with a cheering yell in it. And so, but he couldn't keep a straight face when I went in to see him and he tried to correct me. And he finally just laughed and shooed me on, but yes. It created a bit of a stir. This kind of story about Molly Marshall is not beside the point. It is part of the point. She is seriously interested in theology, the study of the nature of God and belief. And her calling will lead her beyond courtside prayers to further theological explorations that will soon create a much bigger stir. Molly sometimes describes her life as a long obedience in the same direction quoting Frederick Nietzsche. The direction of that long obedience would next point to Louisville, Kentucky, along the Ohio River, the same town that hosted Molly's great-aunt Clem, and birthed a young African-American man who loved to box, Cassius Clay, who would become the great Muhammad Ali, who slipped not just punches but cultural bonds, who won a gold medal in Rome. Ali was another brother who would inspire Molly with the unthinkable. Cassius Clay of the United States comes out in the light trunks.
Brother Molly is a production of Good Faith Media. It's hosted by me, Erica Whitaker. It's written by Cliff Vaughn, with additional writing by me. Cliff Vaughn is the producer and editor, and Mitch Randall is executive producer. Narration recorded by Carter Harrell. Special thanks in this episode to Babs Ball, Eileen Campbell-Reed, Helen Moore Montgomery, Susan Shaw, and David Wilkinson. I'm George Mason, host of The Good God Project, conversations that matter about faith and public life. You can find our weekly video podcasts at Good Faith Media or at goodgodproject.com. Thank you for tuning in to Good Faith Media's production of Brother Molly. Molly Marshall has taught us all about the courage and conviction it takes to lead in Baptist life. She's teaching us still.